Assalamu alaikum everyone. Welcome to the Renovatio podcast. My name is John Erdali. Today I'm going to be speaking with Asmauddin, a little bit about our guest. Asmauddin is a religious liberty lawyer and scholar working for the protection of religious expression for people of all faiths in the U.S. and abroad. Her, her areas of expertise include law, law and religion, uh, international human rights law, uh, Islam and religious freedom. Uh, she's the author of two books, one recently published. Her first book was entitled, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. And her more recent book is called The Politics of Vulnerability, How to Heal Muslim-Christian Relations in a Post-Christian America. I've been looking forward to speaking with Asma for a while. I think she has a rare combination of subject area concerns and also, I should say, real expertise in the fine-grained detail of the law relating to these areas, which I think is not that common. And I think it makes her a great resource for not just the Muslim community, but for multiple communities in the United States and actually probably beyond the United States. So welcome, Asma. It's very nice to be speaking with you. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here. There's a lot of topics here that I would, I would love to cover. I want to try to restrict them. And, I, and I'm hoping that we can somehow explore some of these important you know, cultural, social, even political issues relating to religious freedom, to the rights of Muslims, but also to be able to inform that discussion with your knowledge and your expertise on the mechanics of the law, you know, you want to say when the rubber hits the road, because it's easy to have a discussion that's kind of, you know, emotive and sentimental and to talk about feelings and kind of the present moment. But it's quite another to actually be able to have a view of what can practically be accomplished, what the real possibilities are, you know, what happens in the courts, what the law allows, and so forth and so on. So these are things which I hope that we can kind of get to and really, you know, have a theoretically informed discussion. But I, and perhaps in the beginning, just very briefly, and I know you've probably been asked these questions a million times, and forgive me for asking it, but perhaps you could, in a brief fashion, just maybe sum up the the subject matter areas of your two books, you know, what your first book was about and maybe how it led to the second book. And then we can, on the basis of that, maybe continue speaking about some of the details. Sure. So both of the books come out of my now over a decade of experience in the religious liberty space, uh, the majority of which were spent actually litigating these cases. And then more recently, I've kind of moved into the space of scholarship and public engagement around religious liberty, entirely sort of inspired by the fact that it's so such a hot-button issue. It's so much misunderstanding, and yet it's so critical to everything that Americans are going through right now that I really felt like somebody needed to kind of bridge that space between the legalese that a few people understand and the public understanding of that. So, you know, back in 2009, I started um, at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which is a nonprofit religious liberty law firm that is currently a pretty significant winning streak at the U.S. Supreme Court, actually has a complete win record with all of its cases at the Supreme Court, a number of which I got to work on when I was there, and both had experience working on international legal issues, primarily in Muslim-majority states, and then a lot of it on domestic issues. And I noticed about, like, towards the, the latter half of my tenure there, I was involved with this case called, it was a Hobby Lobby case, which involved this for-profit you know, nationwide crafts chain that brought a challenge against the contraceptive mandate portion of the Affordable Care Act. And there was this concern that the fundamentalist Protestant owners of Hobby Lobby said that they were fine providing the long list of contraception that was required, except the two that they considered to be affordifacients. So this would be the morning after and the week after pill. And they said that this just, you know, according to our beliefs against abortion, we also cannot facilitate abortion or the use of these abortifacients by others, including our employees. They're free to use them, but we cannot be sort of this facilitator, we cannot be complicit in what we think is an evil action. And so this was an extremely high-profile case. It was the one, I think, that got the most attention, even though there was a wide range of Catholic nonprofits that also brought challenges. And it was kind of, it thrust me, by virtue of being at the Beckett Fund and working on this case, it thrust me into the space where suddenly religious liberty which previous to that, I think my experience was mostly on pretty sort of bread and butter issues related to building places of, of worship, wearing religious garb, types of things that most people didn't really fight about. 
And suddenly I was sort of thrust into this, this political space where religious freedom was essentially being understood through a very political lens. When you work on these issues, I mean, you, you mentioned, John, earlier, the sort of this being, having this expertise in the law and the way that it helps us move past the emotive to the actual practical implications. And that for me has always been the function of law. Like what is actually at issue in these cases? What are the parties asking for? And what is the court actually deciding as opposed to what the media likes to say it's deciding, which it's, which is much easier for purposes of sound bites than the more complex arguments. And so I saw this huge disjuncture between what was going on in the public portrayal of the case and what was actually happening. And so I put myself really out there as this person who belonged to a religious minority and was willing to counter this narrative that these white Christians that were part of this case are somehow against women. And then beyond that, it's kind of grown into against minorities of all sorts. And so to be a female and to be a religious minority and a racial minority and to say, wait a second, I think something different's going on was, was pretty significant. But, but concurrent to that, you know, as I saw this increased tendency among white Christians to kind of bring these religious liberty claims to have this feeling of threat that their religious liberty is being attacked in this country. And for me to put myself out there, I took it also as an opportunity to show up to these spaces and tell these same white Christians, look, I'm here for you. And I fully expect that you will be there for my religious community when it's going through its struggles. And there was a disjuncture there. Like I have very sort of vivid memories and experiences of just, you know, for example, being at this thing called the Religious Freedom Rally, which was a rally. <laughs> And it was rowdy, as all rallies are. And I stepped up to the mic and I made that very clear statement that I am here and I'm standing for you, but I fully expect that you stand in support of my community. And suddenly there was total silence and the rally was no longer rowdy at all. And so that was where the first book came out of. It really came out of a general sort of unease uh, with what I saw as, as essentially hypocrisy. And again, the first book, which was published in 2019, and I wrote it in 2018, happened in the midst of the Trump era when very sort of explicit attacks were being made on the religious freedom of Muslims. And it was happening at a time when the Republican Party was all about religious freedom. Like that was their top priority. That is what Trump sold himself on to 81% of white evangelicals and said, I will protect your religious freedom. And then he proceeded to do exactly that. And yet there was, again, that hypocrisy that was becoming very, very obvious at this point. And specifically so that there was a claim that was gaining prominence that Islam is not a religion and that therefore Muslims don't get religious freedom. And so that's where the first book came out of, which is titled, again, When Islam is Not a Religion. And I'm explaining in that book, hey, guys, for those of you who really value religious freedom, this is the worst idea. Don't make this, make, don't make this argument because once you start carving out exceptions to the law guess who those exceptions are going to come back and be applied to uh, in addition to all the other religious groups. And so I went on tour with this book. Um, it was an incredibly fruitful, busy tour that was only brought to an end because of the COVID shutdown. And throughout that time period, I noticed a time and again that there was this sort of willingness among many conservative audiences to listen to what I had to say, even though I was being very explicitly critical of their actions or their co-religionists. And that phenomenon, the sort of social psychological phenomenon of what was going on is what I parse in the second book, which is called The mm -hmm. Politics of Vulnerability. Excellent, excellent. That's very interesting because it, it leads to the general theme of what I was interesting, interested in, which is, well, let me ask it this way. Uh, in what ways, and I'm thinking of the American Muslim community now, although that's not the only relevant community, but in what ways do you think the American Muslim community, as they're looking out at these social legal issues related to religious freedom and rights and so forth, is there a confusion? In other words, is there a way in which the, the issues that they're most worried about and that they're thinking about don't really match up with the issues that maybe you think they should be caring about? In other words, are the Muslims of America not being strategic and tactical in the right ways and thinking about the issues and thinking about issues that are important, but maybe not getting that they're not being productive and constructive in the way that they approach those issues, specifically about the law, specifically about how you, let's say, carry out rights campaigns and kind of activism and so forth and so on. Is there a mismatch there that could be corrected and what might be some ways of correcting it? My so the short answer is yes. I think there is a mismatch, at least among a, a significant portion of the community. And that's from my perspective, again, coming at this from a legal of, from both a legal perspective and also 
someone coming at this from the perspective of wanting to protect the community and its interest in the long term. And so just as there's lots of confusion around religious freedom and how it works and how it needs to be consistent for everyone in order for it to be available to anyone, there's lots of confusion about that on the part of Christians and those on the political right. But similarly, there's a lot of confusion around that on the left. And that was something, and, and including many Muslims, I think that's the central sort of confusion that I set out in the first book to explain. And in, well, there's the, the majority of the book is uh, geared toward conservatives and Christians. Toward the end, sort of the last half of the book, I turn to this other aspect of this phenomenon of when Islam is not a religion, which I know, John, or you've also tackled in your writing. And in that part, I sort of turn my attention and my criticism to the political left and talk about the ways in which Islam, even as it's it's being championed, is being championed as something other than a religion, and other than something that should be understood in terms of its deeps or spiritual significance, and the sense of duty that comes with being a religious believer. And it's being defended on very particular terms, the terms that are consonant between a particular political agenda and it is defended to that extent, as opposed to when Islamic beliefs and practices might start to line up with conservative, the types of conservative beliefs that Christians, for example, might have, then that support begins to fall through. And so I bring attention to that, and it is something that I explore more completely in my second book. It was like the last chapter of my first book, I kind of threw this out there, and folks are like, you kind of need to like delve a little bit deeper into that, and I felt the need to do that as well. And so in the second book, I explore that using a number of different tools, both social psychology, I use law and politics again, but also political science and, and this idea of mega-identities, which we can get into soon. And the concern at at the core of it, as you referenced, is if you think of us as one of a range of marginalized minorities that are being positioned against this powerful white Christian majority, and that's the frame that you're going to put on this, then you're going to begin to overlook exactly all the different things that you're giving up. Yes. So what are those things? In other words, if we can maybe now get into that a little bit, like get into some of the details of it, like, you know, one angle of it is, you know, there have been some suggestions and here's where I'm really out of my depth, and this is why I, I would love to hear what you have to say about it. You know, there's a kind of, you know, Muslims might have a vague idea that the Constitution affords them certain kinds of rights, and there's certain kinds of remedies that you have in terms of the law if your, if your rights are violated. And, you know, typically we speak or we think about it in terms of free exercise, you know, establishment clause, you know, that, the, that, that we have certain religious protections. But then there's a movement or a set of ideas, you know, people have written articles trying to suggest that perhaps a better approach is the one that relies not so much on the First Amendment, but on the 14th Amendment and, and, and seeking remedies under equal protection as opposed to religious freedom. And it seems to me as a, as a layman in this area that what happens with that is that you begin to put yourself in a certain camp, right? Because it, it would seem, and pr- correct me if I'm wrong, that in America at least, the First Amendment religious freedom has, has taken on this aura of being a, a conservative issue, right? A kind of a right-wing issue. Whereas, you know, this idea of equal protection, protection of minorities, and that seems to be associated with being a left-wing issue. And therefore, pursuing religious freedom, if a Muslim pursues religious freedom, fights for religious freedom, this is seen as being, by some on the left, as quote-unquote aligning with conservative forces, which, is, which would be considered a no-no for them. But then pursuing equal protection under the 14th Amendment and taking that path, while it might seem to afford certain kinds of advantages, number one, runs the risk of undermining the freedoms that you would get under the First Amendment. And number two, it might also seem to make the community to be aligned with certain left-wing causes, let's say, or left-wing communities or activist trends. And I was wondering if you know, that very kind of crude way of asking the question. I mean, is there something to that? In other words, does, is there an issue where Muslims need to be paying attention to these different approaches, these different alignments that potentially arise? I've heard you say before that, you know, especially in the American case, the protections afforded by the First Amendment in the United States are quite broad and quite powerful. And these are something very precious and very We have to be very careful about giving them up or trying to sort of replace them with some other sets of protections. And I was wondering, and I kind of want to invite you to be as maybe even get technical and kind of get into it, like 
you know, what should we be thinking about in this area? Like, what are the issues? Sure. So there's a lot that you bring up here, even beyond the technicalities, which I will get to. You know, you're talking about being careful about approaches and alignments. This is something that I explain in my most recent book using this concept of mech identities, which I just referenced a little bit earlier in this interview. And I thought it was, you know, I, I had this particular idea. I had my observations. I like to say I was sort of in the field, having uh, these various interactions with people, kind of reading up on literature, watching what's going on in the news, on, on social media. And there was this phenomenon that I think a number of us have identified, this sort of alignment of Muslims as part of the liberal camp. And what, but I didn't quite have a term to describe exactly what was going on in a way that was easily explainable until I stumbled upon some political science research in which the term or the concept of mega identities was introduced. And, and essentially the idea is that our political identities have ceased to be simply about policy issues or differences on policy positions, but have now extended to include a wide range of what they call traits. Uh, there are traits of the, either the conservative mega identity or the liberal mega identity. And this includes things even like where we do our grocery shopping. If you shop at Trader Joe's or Whole Foods, you're probably a liberal. If you drive a hybrid or electric car, then you're probably a liberal. And there's actual studies showing that if you eat sushi, for example, you're probably a liberal. And so there, these things have become so sorted in the public imagination, but also through data, there, there is actual evidence that these things do sort themselves according to your political identity. And what I realized, I mean, that gave me the term or the frame to begin to understand what was going on with American Muslims in the U.S. Such a championing of Muslims and Muslims' rights, I, I understood as becoming traits of liberal mega-identity. And there's plenty of data, plenty of things you can just observe. I think all of us have experienced it to some extent, whether you agree with that alignment or you don't agree with that alignment, the fact is that that alignment has, in many cases, has happened. And I think a perfect example of that, for example, was the Women's March soon after Trump's inauguration, in which one of the most prominent symbols of anti-Trumpism was a poster with a woman, a Muslim with a headscarf. Uh, also, one of the four organizers of the Women's March was a Muslim woman in a headscarf. And there's other data, such as, for example, right after various terrorist attacks, people who are polling attitudes toward Muslims noticed that over a certain period of time, even after a terrorist attack, there's an increase in positive attitudes towards Muslims. But that increase actually happens among Democrats. And so when you see the commentators who or the, the ones who have conducted these studies sort of analyze them and sort of try to figure out what's going on, they say this isn't really just this isn't really about Muslims. What's happening here is that Muslims have become a symbol of anti-Trumpism. And so if that is what you're aligned against, then your positive your attitudes are going to become positive and stay positive. And so that among many other studies that I cite in the book where this phenomenon is happening. And so the flip side of that, of course, is that when the mega identities and all the traits are lined up against each other so that you have to oppose all the traits of the opposing political tribe means that a lot of conservatives then are moved to resist Muslims and to resist Muslims' rights uh, as, as a function of their opposition to the liberal mega identity. And I'm not saying this is the entire explanation. I, I recognize that Christian hostility toward Muslims is, is a complicated matter. American hostility or anyone's hostility towards Muslims has all kinds of elements of, as you know, John, or there's, there's something to it when people say there's a racialization happening and racism. There's definitely concerns about securitization. But until I did my study, I didn't really see people digging deep into this element of political tribalism. And so the way this is lined up is that, oh, yes, Muslims are traits of the liberal mega identity, but they come alongside a number of other marginalized minorities. Essentially, the framing here is powerful white Christians versus XYZ list of marginalized minorities. And Muslims make the list, but so do Black Lives Matters activists, so do sexual minorities, and, and then so on. So that you can put the Me Too movement, if you see the way the conservatives respond to a number of different surveys and so on, there's a positioning against, it kind of goes like this, it's like BLM, feminists, you know, LGBTQ individuals and Muslims, and we're kind of just put into a group and we're one of many. And that certainly is the way that these things are thought about on the left in terms of the, the protection of Muslims' rights, which I do want to take a moment to say that that work that is being done among many liberals, and I know people who are left of center, who are liberals, who are doing tremendous work, and, and none of this is to, is to 
show like lack of gratitude for the work that they've done. I think it's really just kind of show, trying to dig into some of the complexities and seeing how how true that is to sort of maintaining the authenticity of, of the Muslim experience. But so you see this list and, and the way that, that it does function is that you are one among many on this list and you have to work for ex- pretty much expecting kind of quid pro quo. If you're expecting support from other members of this list, then you got to support their rights. And I, I think it's an interesting concept. It's something that I briefly critique in my first book towards the end. I mean, it's actually a very common argument. And I, and I remember there was this article by two very high-profile Muslims that was circulated where it was, they basically said, look, civil rights is not a buffet. You can't pick and choose. You've got you to protect it for everyone. But what I find interesting about that framing is the fact that somehow civil rights is only a, something that belongs to this list of marginalized minorities, and rights are not something that belong to people who are conservative or who are thought to be part of the majority. And I'm, as I'm sure you know, John, there's this discourse now about power. It's all about power, and our civil rights are ultimately there to, to help those who don't have power. And if you do have power, suddenly you cease to be human or at least for the purposes of your human and civil rights, which I find to be a problematic concept for a number of reasons. One, I think by virtue of being human, you should have human rights, right? I'm somebody, again, who did a lot of advocacy in Muslim-majority states, and I've seen that way too often in terms of what happens when you begin to take a selective approach to human rights. But, I mean, the other part of it is that there's really a question of, like, who is a minority? How are we defining privilege? How are we defining harm? And that's something I explore in the second book. I'm like, you're just taking it for granted that your definition of harm is a definition of harm. Whereas if you talk to folks on the right, they absolutely feel like a persecuted minority. And oftentimes the media kind of laughs at that. They scoff at it. Ah, the evangelical persecution complex, like just a bunch of, you know, white people who had a lot of power and now they don't have power and they're upset about it. But they're, they're real emotions. They're the real feelings of being under siege, of being harmed by the quote unquote liberal elite. Um, and I don't think all of it is made up. I don't think all of it is far-fetched. I think a lot of it is is real. And so I think that when you get into this question of privilege, oppression, harm, and so on, I think you have to understand that there are different perceptions of harm and even different perceptions of minorities. And in reality, demographically, white Protestants are actually now a numerical minority in this country and are continuously being projected to be outnumbered by both religious and racial groups in the near future. That's one part of the response to your point about alignments and approaches and, and parts of the argument that people are not seeing. Now, in terms of the difference between being protecting our rights under the free exercise clause and the equal protection, I think you and I might have read the same article. There, there was one, there was a law review article that I actually cited in my first book, and I was also similarly shocked when I, when I read that argument being proposed that instead of free exercise, you should be using the, you know, you should be using equal protection, and. I was like, you're just leaving way too much on the table if you do that. I mean, in addition to all these sort of political and intricate social issues that I just brought up in terms of defining your rights in relation to the rights of other people on this list of minorities, there's also the question, I mean, which became very clear to me doing litigation in this space was just how vast the protections are under the the free exercise clause, but more specifically, uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the deft way that groups that understand what all is possible, bring legal claims and make really sophisticated legal arguments in court and get tremendous protection. And whether it be a wide range of questions around autonomy, such as institutional autonomy, I think the Muslim community as a a community that's growing and, and is not in a place yet where we have a lot of institutions, doesn't fully understand what's at stake and I fear that one day we'll get to this place where you know, we're increasingly becoming more sophisticated, and then we're going to realize just exactly how much we left on the table if we don't help sort of protect the rights to religious autonomy that Christian organizations are fighting for. And even more broadly, I mean, there's, I, I can go through a list of different things that are protected under free exercise, but I think in this day and age, religious freedom is the way to protect the ability just to dissent to stand apart from the status quo and say that I have the right to express this view, whether the majority accepts it or not, whether it's politically correct or not, whether it's a popular view, religious freedom gives me that space to speak. I mean, it's intricately connected with free speech. And I think that ultimately is the value of religious freedom. Yeah, that's very, I mean, thank you for that. That's very interesting. As you were speaking, it made me think, 
You know, there is a tendency within the, I don't want to only restrict this to the American Muslim community, but also ask one last question, which is that, you know, there is a tendency in which, you know, some members of the Muslim community will see people who, let's say, voice some of the opinions that you just did, or maybe, you know, uh, uh, other similar ones. And, and there's a kind of a reflexive idea that, well, what you're doing is you're bandwagoning with, let's say, conservatives or something like that. But then conversely, we have to be honest, there's also pretty frequent accusations that, let's say, you know, certain political activists, even, let's say, members of Congress like Ilhan Omar and others like this are, are similarly bandwagoning with the left, right? And there's this kind of idea that somehow there's these either secret or open alliances and kind of political movements that are taking place. And it seems that there's probably some truth to that. There's probably at one level that that actually is happening where Muslims have divided up left and right. But there's probably also a degree to which it's just abusive. And people are kind of making bad faith accusations against people for having bad intentions and sort of really being secret conservatives or ultra conservatives or secret uh, LGBT activists or something of the kind, you know, these really hot button issues in the American Muslim community. Are we being just as naive about alignments as the broader society is? Because it seems to me that like these days, I think what, what the last election showed, the last presidential election showed, and I think you discussed this in your second book as well, when talking about like these traits that are often associated with people. Like what we consider to be left and right, what we consider to be liberal and conservative, and the traits that are supposed to go along with them, and the groups who are supposed to be loyal to each side, it doesn't seem to work out, right? There seems to be either we've gotten it wrong up until now, or there's a kind of a, a dynamic moment now where people are starting to realign and kind of, you know, and sort of get together in different kinds of coalitions. Trump increased his voting share amongst groups which people would not have expected that he would have increased his voting share with, you know, with, with, with minority communities and so forth. I think coming up the next five, 10 years, maybe the next generation is perhaps we all need to rethink this kind of lazy even division between liberal conservative, between left and right and kind of become, and I, th I think this is something that you've really been pushing for, become a little bit more sophisticated about what it means to, let's say, group together with a certain group for a certain cause, for certain kinds of outcomes. And I was wondering if maybe you could reflect on that. Like, what, what do you see coming? What are some of these intellectual, perhaps, alliances that might be coming up, legal alliances, social, political? Because you're talking about, in the new book, the vulnerability and how there's a particular group, you know, white Christians who feel things are being taken away from them, they feel the country is changing and so forth, which at a certain level is true. It, it is changing. There are certain things which are in fact being taken away and kind of and changing. And we don't want to just say, okay, well, Muslims and Christians should get together because we all have the same interests, something that's simple-minded. But there, but there are perhaps realignments and changes that we should be undertaking that are important to undertake, not just out of expediency, not just because, oh, we'll get what we want, but out of principle. You know, there are certain principles that we can support, certain causes that are worth getting behind. Perhaps you can reflect on some of those issues. Sure. So I agree with you that there is a tendency to kind of look at this type of work and say, well, this is equivalent of selling out or compromising with people who are beyond the pale, right? Just people who are, I mean, so much of our conversation today tends to toward moralization, right? Instead of saying, XYZ person that we disagree with is wrong, suddenly they're evil and therefore it cannot be engaged with. And so, I mean, these are questions. I think there was an official book review that was put out where, where the reviewer actually had this one line where he, he said, this is a sociological analysis completely on point, but I wonder to what extent this takes into account the sort of dynamics of privilege and oppression, for example, which is something that I addressed earlier on where, I'm, where I said, well, I was fully cognizant of questions of privilege and oppression. Nowhere in the book did I equate the types of harm that different groups are facing. Um, I absolutely think that what American Muslims are facing is of higher degree of urgency than what Christians are facing. But uh, I think the more that we kind of devolve into the sort of competing victimhood, the less likely we are to move forward. And so I have an entire chapter dedicated to this phenomenon of competing victimhood, what people in the, the human rights space call the victim Olympics. And so it's better to stop competing and move on. But I think the other part of it is also what I said about, well, Competing victimhood at its core has different ideas of who exactly is privileged and who is oppressed. And so I would say that, yes, even though the tendency today is toward a discourse of confrontation, and I take a very different approach, 
nothing here is about compromising something that is core to who we are. It's really about figuring out what are paths of effective change and what are ways that we can do it with recognizing this our common humanity we have with other Americans. And that is something that I'm absolutely inspired by our faith toward. I think a lot of people use Islam to sort of justify their various sort of activist leanings. And in my world, I, I don't think that deciding that you know, half of the American population is evil and beyond the pale is at all reflective of what our faith demands for us in times like this and at any time. There's that. There's a tendency to sort of push back. And I, and I went into it knowing that there was, this was going to be a bit of an uphill battle. And then this question of, is this simplistic? Is this just another way of saying we should work with conservatives against, for example, LGBTQ rights? I mean, that's something I've absolutely seen other people engage in, that type of coalition building based on sort of shared notion around traditional sexuality and also shared fears around changing sexual norms. And this book is, is not about that. I mean, to... For that sort of organizing to happen, you don't need a book like this, right? People have already seen what they have in common, and they're forming those coalitions. This book is really about complicating the very idea of our tribal alignments and calling for, as you noted, towards the end of my book, where I, I try to figure out some solutions or propose some solutions, I do talk a bit about cross-cutting coalitions. And it's really about being able to step aside from our automatic tendencies to group ourselves with a particular political agenda based on this broader tribal dynamic that has emerged. But to say that if we're going to be part of Team Blue, then we have to accept everything that Team Blue says. And similarly, if you're part of Team Red, you don't need to accept everything that's part of Team Red. There are elements of truth on both sides, and there's elements that are really problematic on both sides. And I think it's really about disentangling ourselves from that tribal divide and being able to think more critically. One of the things I talk about in the book is mindfulness. I set out in this book to, to explain the mechanics of polarization broadly, but more specifically the mechanics of polarization as they concern American Muslims and their relationship to Christians. And I'm like, once you become aware of the mechanics, it's a mindfulness that it has generated. Then you can begin to figure out how much of this am I going to fall for? How much of this am I going to accept? It doesn't mean I don't get to be angry about different things. I can be emotional. I can be passionate, but I'm going to be a little bit more mindful about the issues that I'm going to be mindful, uh, that I'm going to be passionate about. Right. Yeah. Do you find in the spaces that you work in that you're fighting against? Because it seems to me that you are, a, as a legal thinker, as an author around these issues, that you are very much in the kind of liberal civil rights tradition, what used to be considered kind of the mainline liberal tradition of America, focused around rights and focused around law and procedures and fairness and so forth and so on. But as you know, there is intellectually speaking in academia and the law schools and, and kind of legal theory, there's a pushback on the idea and that there are these there are systemic problems which cannot be solved merely through you know having fair laws and through the courts but that there's kind of systemic racism systemic bigotry systemic uh, sexism and, and so forth and so on do you find yourself in these spaces when you're arguing cases when you're trying to build coalitions when you're trying to talk to muslims when you're trying to talk to other people on these issues that you're you're running into a kind of a headwind where not only are you dealing with the particulars of the cases that you're dealing with but you're also philosophically having to try to convince people that this approach that you take, this broad approach that you take, is the right way, that we should not be, as you say, kind of factionalizing and adopting these mega identities and, you know, seeing ourselves in terms of power hierarchies. Because I think what you were, what you were getting at is, I mean, you never know if you might be the strong group today, but tomorrow you might not be. Like, you, you might change your spot in the power hierarchy. So if it's, if it's only a question of, of of helping oppressed groups. Are you helping those groups because they're oppressed or are you identifying them by tribe? And if those tribes become strong and the other tribe becomes weak, then what do you do? You've abandoned your principles and now you're sort of left with this kind of vulgar tribalism, which is the basis of your kind of uh, judgments of fairness, which uh, doesn't really leave room for people to have any kind of discussions with each other. So, but I'm, now I'm, I'm kind of getting off the topic of the question, which is that do, do you find yourself tangling philosophically with people in the legal world and with the with the, some of the places that you work on those questions. Yeah, I think you're exactly right with some of the things you're reflecting on. So on this question of power, I mean, this is part of what I was talking about earlier, this idea that somehow civil rights are only for those who are deemed powerless, and they are not for those who we decided have power, right? So it's like civil rights are really there about realigning or, and redistributing power, right? So 
Again, this idea of if Muslims are part of this list of marginalized minorities, those people who made that list get to have civil rights and human rights. But those who are powerful majorities, we can oppose their rights. We don't have to think twice about opposing what they bring to court because somehow they're outside the purview of what civil rights was meant to protect. And I find that to be problematic, partly because, again, I do have an international lens. So I see how this sort of selective approach to human rights and where it takes us. And it's, it's not a good place. And I think the other thing you were saying was something that I reflect on as well, this idea, this sort of obsession with power. Well, what happens when these range of minorities that are deemed marginalized right now and powerless right now do attain power, right? So we already see trends in that direction in terms of the sort of browning of America, right? So whites are going to become a smaller and smaller minority, the increasing sort of power in politics. And what many people on the right, if you talk to them, in their perception, minorities have power, that they're the ones who have the real power, right? They are part and parcel of, again, quote unquote, the liberal elite. It's an interesting sort of phenomenon to to watch and to listen to the, these voices where they're expressing true vulnerability. And in the book, I actually quote an email that I got from one person, and he actually uses the word vulnerability to describe how he feels in this country. And again, these are the sorts of things that are scoffed at, but I think that if you just reflect on what he's saying... So in the courts, yes, the, the conservatives continue to win major wins at the Supreme Court. But in the culture, I think it's unquestionable that liberals are winning. And as he says, look, you know, you can turn on late night talk shows at any day and hear them making fun of conservatives. It's just day in, day out. That is very sort of accepted part of our popular culture. And again, people can listen to what I'm saying and say, yeah, they deserve to be laughed at. You know, what's the problem? But that doesn't change the fact that you're laughing at people and they're, and they're feeling deeply vulnerable. And then as I talk about in the book, that kind of triggers this sort of process of intergroup bias and hostility toward the people that they think are threatening them. And so even this question of power hierarchies, I think it's really a question of perspective. And I'm not trying to make everything subjective. I think it's just a fact that, yes, in the legal space, conservatives are winning in the cultural space and, and the political space sort of goes back and forth. But the cultural space, I think it's unquestionable that the people with power are people on the political left. And so I think even that, like you need to shift your conversation around power hierarchies and who's more powerful, depending on which context you're looking at. For me, in terms of you said, do I sort of find myself kind of confronting this resistance? And I think yes, but I, I position myself in this space, somebody who, again, is a woman who is a racial minority and I'm a religious minority, right? Like I'm all kinds of minority. And then you have me sort of showing up in defense of white Christian conservatives. And it's a really sort of stark disruption of our tribal identities, right? Like people are just so used to saying, and I talk about this in the start of one of my chapters in the second book where I talk about how I did this interview with Al Jazeera America, where I try to explain why the the win in the Hobby Lobby case was was a good thing, and it's like, oh my gosh, it's international, you know, Qatari owned t television station. There's a Muslim female, like a non-white Muslim female, on there talking about this. It's like this is not the sorts of things. This isn't the way we divide things. This is there's a bunch of traits that, uh, that belong in the liberal mega identity. Now we've just sort of messed it all up. I take a lot of joy and satisfaction in, in sort of confusing people in that way. When I go and I've done a number of speaking engagements, I what I try to do. I have this one presentation where I essentially take people through a series of cases. They're, they would never have imagined have anything in relation to each other, in common with each other. So cases challenging, for example, the anti-Sharia law in Oklahoma, connecting that to a case with a Christian baker who declined to make a custom wedding cake for a gay couple, to uh, the challenge against the statue of Jesus on federally owned property. You know, just connecting to taking the person through these various different scenarios and explaining to them, as I'm taking through, look at this principle. Oh, look at the way that this principle got applied in this case. And it takes people, based on what they've told me, on a, on a bit of an emotional roller coaster where they're just like, it's completely, again, messing up the way they divided things in their head. And most recently, I did this with the Supreme Court case in that was decided the evening before Thanksgiving that struck down Governor Cuomo's restrictions, COVID regulations on houses of worship, and required him to be more fine-tuned in the way that he was applying those regulations and the language in that Supreme Court opinion was about, look, the, the, the First Amendment, our constitutional rights don't go in sabbatical. Like we're seven months into this pandemic, and I think we, it's time to be a little bit more careful in terms of how we're restricting people's fundamental rights. And the overall theme here is how does a government need to react in relation to its protection of its citizens' rights in states of emergency? 
And lots of Muslims on my social media were immediately opposed to the decision until I kind of pointed out to them in one speaking engagement that I did, well, guess which other religious group would love to have their rights protected in types of states of emergency, which is the group that typically gets hit, which is a group that has gotten hit. And I remind them of, for example, NYPD surveillance that was just absolutely widespread and egregious in the, the aftermath of 9-11 for, for over a decade. And I'm like, you know, this types of stuff, it creates precedent. It creates precedent. And that is precedent that we can benefit from. I think that's one of the key points is that there has to be a certain degree of a long view. One cannot just simply look at these immediate wins like in the media or kind of public public opinion or so forth and so on. I mean, I think if anything that the conservatives have taught us is that you can just keep hammering at something that's pretty unpopular and wind up getting long-term gains. You know, so it's not, they all, those two things don't always track with each other. You know, in the time that we have left, which is not a lot, I've been really provincial here and talking a lot about the American case. But perhaps you could reflect upon maybe, are the issues the same? Are there similar issues internationally? You know, for example, like, what are the differences, for example, between the way that Muslims in America have to deal with the law and broadly speaking in Europe, let's say, where you have uh, European Muslims. And we kind of conflate those two together, for example. It's, that's pretty common, you know, that they somehow face the same challenges. But actually, it, it, it's probably not the case when you, when you look at some of the details. And then also, if you're inclined to maybe reflect on if those issues also apply in Muslim-majority states, where you know, the issues of minorities and religious rights also arise. So perhaps we can connect this conversation with places outside of America, which some of my colleagues outside of America will often say is kind of weird when it comes to some of these issues. These issues. You know, some of the conversations we're having, we're assuming that everyone is having, but they really aren't in all cases. Sometimes we're kind of an oddball on some of these issues. Yeah, well, oddball, I think, in the sense that I think we're, our issues are more complicated, right? They're more complex because we do have First Amendment protections. We do have protections under religious land use acts and religious freedom restoration acts that people in places like France and another, another, uh, a number of other European states that feel comfortable imposing things like burqa bans don't have. And the frame in places like France is one of freedom from religion, as opposed to the U.S. framework of freedom for religion. So in that sense, there is an absolute sort of stark difference. I think there's a difference in the type of Muslim also, the, and the way the Muslims are perceived in these respective parts of the world. And so, yeah, I mean, there are lots of things that European Muslims are dealing with in terms of sort of, that would be considered basic rights, that for the most part, Americans will you know see as obviously wrong, whether it be the ability to how you wear the religious garb of your choice, whether it be the intrusion of the government into Islamic school curricula, whether it be European governments choosing who's going to give the sermon and reviewing the sermon in you know prior to it being delivered. I mean, those sorts of things are stark uh, violations of religious autonomy. And this actually reminds me of the question you asked about, well, what exactly is at stake with the free exercise clause? And I think that's a perfect example. It's a per perfect illustration of everything you lose if you begin to water down your protections under the free exercise clause. So I think, if anything, that should be a, sort of an alarming real-world example of, like, don't, don't give up what you have here because you might end up in that scenario. And absolutely, with a global sort of perception and, and sort of pervasive hostility against Muslims, I don't think it's beyond imagination. In fact, there are people in this country, people that the Center for American Progress has referred to as uh, being part of the fear, fear incorporated, who actually say exactly these sorts of things. I mean, you have people like Pamela Geller, who says that a Muslim woman, uh, her wish to wear a headscarf in a workplace should not be accommodated because the hijab is a symbol of political domination. And, you know, a Muslim truck driver who doesn't want to transport alcohol because it's a violation of his religious beliefs and being complicit in the, the drinking of alcohol by others is really just a symbol of Islamic domination. And these people during the Trump era were, were quite close to, to the White House in terms of influence. And so it's not beyond the, you know, our imagination to think that these things can happen in the United States as well, uh, which is another reason why we need to protect our rights to free exercise with a lot of passion and, and clarity and, and strategy. So those are the differences. I think some of the similarities are the culture war issues that that European Muslims are also facing. I think, for example, there was uh, lots going on in France right now in terms of claims of Islamo-leftism and how that's being cultivated on university campuses, that being considered sort of an import from, uh, from the U.S. and American, the American Academy, uh, sort of conflation with that and critical race theory and so on, uh, to the point where you saw Macron's government and his, one of his, some of his top government officials actually supporting that type of language 
And of course, when I saw this complaint about Islamo-leftism, I couldn't help but think about my theory of Muslims as parts of the liberal mega-identity, the sort of conflation of Muslims and Islam with, with the left. So I think there's similarities there. I think on the culture war front in terms of uh, sexual freedom and the conflict between that and traditional religious mores, I think a lot of that is happening in Europe as well. I think they're, they're much further down the road of secularism than the U.S. is, but I think that there's definitely similarities there in terms of shared concerns. Yeah, I can't help but also reflect when you you brought up this uh, Islamo-leftism idea and then tying it together with the mega-identity concept that you use. It also makes me wonder about the future of that mega-identity, because something that I always think about is what happens to the American Muslim component of this so-called mega-identity, this kind of coalition, as people sometimes conceive of it, what happens when, for example, Ilhan Omar no longer functions very well as a thumb in the eye of conservatives? In other words, what happens if there's a new political situation in which liberals, where Muslims are no longer very effective at irritating conservatives, right? Where, where let's say that we're in a new situation where the idea of symbolically trotting out Muslims, for example, like on that Hope poster, or as kind of a, a sort of a kind of a visual reminder of the nature of this kind of diverse coalition. It seems to me that Muslims don't really steer the ship of that coalition in any real form anyway. So in other words, we're kind of in a precarious situation where the moment that Muslims cease to be useful as a kind of ballast on the ship, you might say, that they'll just be left off. They'll just kind of be thrown out. People won't pay attention to them anymore. Do you see that as being a danger? I mean, am I overblowing it? Or to me, it seems as though there's no real leverage, politically speaking, socially speaking, in terms of clout that Muslims have. They kind of serve at the behest of the groups who are really in charge of, you might say, that mega identity, if I can put it in such crass terms. Is that a real concern? Yeah, so the word that I use in my book to describe what's going on is that I say that Muslims are essentially proxies for a larger set, of, a totally separate larger set of issues, right? In these tribal dynamics, the reaction to Muslims is, is less about Muslims, in some cases not about Muslims at all, but about Muslims as a symbol for something that conservatives oppose about liberals. What's interesting is that, you know, when I was thinking through this book and I was talking to this roundtable of engagement experts, this one professor was like, well, which Muslims are you talking about? And she herself is an African-American Muslim because she's like, her experiences are, are drastically different. And I'm like, well, in the book I said, I, it doesn't really matter because when the Muslims, in, in terms of these particular dynamics, Muslim period, regardless of which type of Muslim you are, isn't this sort of imagination as sort of a trait of the liberal team, that those reactions are based on that. Nobody's sitting there sort of parsing, is this a white Muslim or, or a black Muslim or, or an immigrant Muslim, a rich one or a poor one. It's really just that concept of Muslimness and, and, and Islam uh, and the way that it sort of serves as, as a symbol, as this uh, token or a proxy. In contrast, of course, in the book, I do distinguish which Christians I'm talking about because I think that needs to be parsed for various reasons that I explain in the book. And so, yeah, I think when you are a proxy for much bigger issues and when you cease to serve that function, when you're no longer the best, the best tool to sort of achieve those ends, then I think absolutely you risk becoming irrelevant. This is largely the reason why I encourage Muslims to always focus on what's authentic to, to them, as opposed to doing simply what, what this larger coalition requires of them. Don't give up your authenticity in that process, because in the end, I mean, all you really have is whether or not you were true to yourself and to your faith. This, I think, is the theme that I hear in, your, in what you're saying, and I also want to commend you on it, which is that, that we can't always be, Muslims, I should say, Muslims cannot always be jumping on bandwagons, right? There has to be leading in terms of principle. And I suspect, and I can't say this for sure, but I suspect that there's probably a lot of Christians and Jews and others who, when they see you doing the work that you're doing, are probably themselves glad for their own sake, right, that they're seeing a kind of somebody who's doing something based upon this principle, which is probably embattled not just probably, which is certainly embattled in their own community, right? So, I mean, in, in the American culture wars, these principles of fairness, ethical principles, whether it's the way in which we um, see ourselves in society as neighbors and so forth and so on, I'm, I'm really, I think the way forward is for us to stop being transactional 
to stop being overly strategic and tactical because you're not going to be able to sustain that for very long. You enter into some kind of arrangement with a coalition or something just out of pure self-interest. It'll probably fizzle out. It's not going to have any real energy. It's not going to have any, as you said, authenticity. And as Muslims would say, it's not going to have any barakah. It's not going to have any kind of real quality to it. But if we are faithful to ourselves, if we're authentic to our own intentions, not only will we feel the benefit of that, which is just integrity, your own personal integrity. But I think I, sometimes we're so pessimistic, we feel so, you know, we look at our own histories and we think that this is not even possible. But other people will follow. I think there's a certain degree of inspiration that other people can take if Muslims do this, even if it's not quite popular, or if it doesn't kind of gain immediate reaction or an immediate response. And so, you know, any lawyers who are listening, uh, anybody who's kind of in the legal field, I would say that they should definitely read your books they should consider kind of following in your footsteps in some of these areas that you're working in. Because it strikes me that it's not as though you, there's a lot of, uh, it's not as though there are many of you, who, you know, who are dealing with this particular area. Unless I'm wrong. It just seems, that's my impression. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm a loner in the space, but I'm hoping that with my writing and engagement, I can, I can sort of clone myself. When I was outlining the book, um, one of my friends, he had this comment. I, I sent it to him for, for some comments, and he said, you know, what would be interesting, in, what you're essentially doing in this book is saying, because remember, the question of power and who's in power is really dependent on your, your perspective. And so from the perspective of a lot of conservative white Christians, they see, again, this range of minorities that are championed, that are getting lots of opportunities, that are being featured in various sort of major media and entertainment spaces by liberals, getting all kinds of, you know, openings and opportunities. And they see Muslims as one of those people, as a one part of a group of such people. And so in their perspective, there is an element of power that is being ascribed to Muslims. And I think that's important here in understanding how these power dynamics are interpreted and experienced. And so he said, in that framing, whether you and I might disagree that we're, I mean, I don't feel powerful. Um, I don't feel like the Muslim community. We, we have all these internal sort of intra-religious critiques about what our community is doing and how it's going it's setting itself up for, for problems down the road and so on. But in that perception, that's power, right? And so he's like, what well, you're modeling is that, look, now that I'm in a position of power, you know, before you were in a position of power, this is what you did to me. But let me tell you now that I'm in a position of power, I choose to, to use that power in a different way. This isn't about sort of stepping on your rights or stepping on you or ignoring you or scoffing at you or making fun of your feelings of vulnerability and anxiety. I'm taking you seriously. And this is a model that, you know, I, I hope that you will continue to emulate regardless of whether you regain that power in the future. I mean, I remember I did this event with Imam Majid from the, the D, this D.C. area, from the Adams Mosque, and he said something. He said, there's nothing inherently wrong or bad about privilege. It's a question about how you're using privilege. And so I think that kind of gets at this. So whatever your perception of who has privilege, it's about how you choose to use that. And so I think that get, gets at what you were talking about as well. And, and in the book, I talk about it through the frames of either covenantal pluralism or confident pluralism, a space where, yes, even though a lot of this is premised on this, what you can think of as transactional, right, self-interest, hey, conservative white Christians, if you really care about religious freedom and are worried about the threats to religious freedom, one really important thing you have to keep in mind if you don't want it to actually be diluted is to protect the rights of Muslims, right? That's ultimately a transactional element in which, by the way, I have to be very careful that my work also is not tokenized or instrumentalized for simply serving those interests, right? Like, I, I don't want it to be that, oh, well, she's making it politically palatable or, she, you know, and it's ultimately leading to the thing that we want. We have to move beyond the transaction. I think it might be a starting point, but ultimately we have to make this about people about that covenantal piece of it and about how much of this is about our respective fates calling us to do something higher than than what this tribal society sort of limits us to. I mean, these are such important things to reflect on. Asma, thank you so much. It was really great having this conversation with you. And I hope that the Renovatio podcast can have you back again to speak about some of these and related issues soon. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome, Assalamu alaikum.